Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read the first uh, six verses. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample, trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray together. Most holy God, we come to your most holy word now. Lord, we love you and we pray that you will speak to us as you've promised through this. Keep us faithful, keep us looking to you. We pray, Lord, that through this word that you will help us, that you will encourage us, that you will change us. Lord, that you'll lift our eyes to you and your wisdom and your care for us. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to assure you that our Christian faith is reasonable, defendable, understandable, rational, accessible. The Christian faith is true. I want to encourage your trust in Scripture. But many mock the Bible. Many mock Christians. There are examples of mockers in in the Bible, and we see how God deals with them. But mockers remain today. People try to drown out or silence the truth of Christianity in multiple different ways. Let me give you A couple of examples. One of the things that frustrates me personally is when I see or hear people that don't even pretend to believe in the truth of Scripture who then quote a Bible verse to try to make an argument against Christianity. They think they've made a strong point and and shut down the Christian worldview. They think they've highlighted some hypocrisy in Scripture, some inconsistency. And they think, therefore, they've knocked down the whole house of cards. They can walk away affirmed in their unbelief. But the truth is, upon honest examination, their arguments make no logical sense. And if people really cared to listen to an explanation, then their objection could be answered from Scripture. They say they don't believe in Scripture, yet they try to use it. That's the true hypocrisy. But rather than talking in generalities, let's get practical. Maybe you've heard some of these points that people try to make. I'm sure you can can add more. I've heard these in in recent months. You Christians eat shrimp. The Old Testament says that you shouldn't do that, and yet you condemn other people for other things in the Bible. You Christians use cords of different types in the same garment, but the Old Testament says you shouldn't do that. 
you hypocrites, you're picking and choosing. Many things like that. There's many more. Perhaps you've heard them or read them on comment sections. Perhaps you've heard them in your own household or among your friends or, or work colleagues. Well, firstly, for the believer, this is our starting point. There are rational, there are reasonable explanations for all the hard questions we get asked about the Bible. All the challenges fall to the ground when we look honestly at them and we examine them under the microscope of Scripture. But if you are an unbeliever and you have these kind of questions and if you are genuinely a truth seeker and not a mocker, then I encourage you to ask, seek, and knock and the door will be open to you. Come to Christ and all the questions that you need answering will be answered. Perhaps not all the questions. I was like that as a teenager. All the questions over and over again. But I was hiding the fact that I truly knew that I was a sinner and needed Christ. Kept putting up all these roadblocks. That was me. I don't have time to deal with uh, all the dozens of objections that people have to, to Scripture uh, this evening, but I, re I repeat, reiterate, there are clear and there are satisfactory answers to all of those questions. Perhaps even when I mentioned a couple of them earlier, you were thinking of the answers because they're easy, they're obvious if you come to this subject and look at the whole of Scripture. And I'd be happy to talk to you about any specific one or point you to resources. But one I want to focus on this evening, which will perhaps help with some general, general principles for them all, is the passage we read together. I'm hearing this increasingly frequently, it seems. Perhaps it's just me. But it's found in verse 1 in chapter 7 of Matthew. Do not judge. Do not judge. And some mockers, some unbelievers... Treat it like a trump card. Boom. Do not judge. And when it's quoted, they're, they're implying that this is what Jesus said. You shouldn't judge. And therefore, they say, if you are Bible-believing Christians, this is a verse in your Bible, you should believe it. Don't you believe what Jesus says? And they're calling foul on believers who point out sin in others because they're obviously judging and Jesus says you shouldn't judge. plainly clear that Christ doesn't do this because these words came out of his mouth. And therefore, you shouldn't judge me, Christian. You shouldn't judge anybody else. And if you do judge me, it means you're going against your Bible. And they walk away thinking that they've answered all the objections without reading any of the surrounding context, without reading any of the rest of the Bible. They cherry-pick little phrases. Is that the answer then? Should you individually, should the church generally, uncritically, non-judgmentally accept everybody, welcome them all in, all their lifestyles, come on in? Because of these three words in Matthew chapter 7. Well, the church does welcome all people in, but the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel does not leave people where they are. It is transformative. And deals with people's sin. It's not a live and let live attitude. We do have a right to say something 
if we judge in the right way, in the biblical way. I'll show you that. I hope to show you that from our reading this evening. But perhaps all that we've been saying from the pulpit is incorrect. Maybe we shouldn't have to call people to repentance and faith because Jesus says those three words, do not judge. Is that right? Of course not. It's a resounding no. And I want to show you this evening where the true hypocrisy lies. And it's not in Scripture. It's not in the Bible-believing faithful Christian who bases their life on Scripture either. The irony is that these people are telling Christians not to judge. They're actually judging in doing that. It reveals some key principles, you see, looking at this subject. Some potential pitfalls in the way people approach Scripture. I don't just want to show you what this passage means, but I want to show you what it doesn't mean as well, how it needs to be rightly applied. And so we need to look at some circumstances in which this was spoken by Jesus. You see, Matthew chapter 7, very familiar passage. It's the conclusion to the famous Sermon on the Mount, began at the start of chapter 5. Remember there, Jesus speaking to the crowds on the mountainside. And and this is a mixed crowd of believers and unbelievers, people from different positions. There's inquirers and skeptics and religious leaders, a spread of humanity. Not much has changed in our generation when the truth of the gospel is presented and people react in different ways. So Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, He's God and man. He's the Savior, but he's also judge. This is the King's Sermon. He's showing the people then and believers today what we should be, what we should do. What does it mean to be his follower, a citizen of heaven? This this sermon isn't really saying, how do I get into heaven? That's all dealt with elsewhere. Of course it is. It's not really asking, how can I be accepted to God? But it's really showing what behaviors demonstrate that I am a true follower of Jesus Christ. How should I live? He he talks about um, behaviors, things that demonstrate that I have been transformed. He talks in this sermon about the Beatitudes, who is truly blessed of God from God's perspective, not from our perspective. He teaches on believers being salt and light. He talks of fulfilling the law. He tells the people that the true following of God is not just following those rules outwardly, but it's it's in the heart that has been miraculously transformed. He talks about divorce and truthfulness. There's those verses in there about turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, giving, praying, fasting. What is real treasure? What should we be searching for? Not earthly treasure. What's the remedy for anxiousness, for worrying? All in chapters 5 and 6. It's a wide-ranging sermon. Lots of application. And now we arrive at that that final third of the chapter in this this epic sermon. So we're joining in two-thirds of the way through. And you've got to remember who he's speaking to in front of him. And we're looking at verses 1 through 6. 
And particularly those first three words, do not judge. So what is the context of those words? Well, here's our first of four points this evening. Just in those first three words, the the mandate. Point number one, the mandate. Do not judge, or just two words in the King James Version. Judge not. The mandate goes further than just a command. What do I mean? It's further than just an imperative. You, You have to do this. Well, let me illustrate that. How about after the service this evening, I, I come back to your home and I tell you on examination that you need to change the laundry detergent that you're using. You've got to do this. I'm telling you. I'm telling you to do that. Now, immediately and rightly, you'd come and you'd say, you have no authority to tell me that. You have no basis upon which to do, on what to do, you know, to tell me that. See, I'm giving you a command, but you need to take into account the authority behind the command. I've no right, I've no authority to make such a demand of you, but it's very different when God speaks. He has every right in every circumstance. And so this mandate comes with the authority of the one behind it. One of the definitions of that that word is an order to do something, but within it is the authority to give that command. It's official. It's from a superior. This comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a royal mandate from the king. So it seems that we have a very clear command not to judge, not to be critical. The language experts uh, talk about this this word as, as judging, as as judging harshly, don't judge harshly. It means he has that in there of deciding, of distinguishing. Possibly, according to one expert, it splits it into two. On the one side, there's analyzing or evaluating things. And then on the other side, there's condemning and avenging in that word judging. And, and this commentator says, the former senses, analyzing and evaluating is what believers should be doing of others. But the condemning and avenging is for God to do. And that gives us some hints as to where we're going this evening. What and how as humanity, as believers, can we or can't we judge? But even when we can legitimately judge, how do we do that? With the right heart, with the right motivation. This relativistic world objects to any kind of judgment from Christians. Riles against them. It reacts. How dare you? Kent Hughes, commentator, says, However, when it comes to matters of individual morality, the world abhors, with a B, opinionated people, especially if they represent conventional morality. In these matters, it adores, the D, the non-judgmental person, They're adored. We like them. The ideal Christian, this is to the world, and especially the ideal clergyman, is an undiscerning, flabby, indulgent, all-accepting jellyfish who lives out the misinterpretation of do not judge. Everyone wants a pastor who will stand here and not judge you. Just tell you all the good news. Never point to your sin. See, in my experience, I think there's Something within humanity that wants to bring others down and bring yourself up. Criticism is is rampant. 
with the election coming up, we, we see that, don't we? Everything is picked on, jumping to conclusions, coming to judgments on people with minimal information, putting people in the worst light possible. But it's not just outside the church. It's inside the church as well. We're not just talking about election season. We're thinking about all the years in between two. Kent Hughes wonders, speaking of Christians in the church, that some seem to think that having a critical spirit is a spiritual gift. It's not. And this beginning of verse 1 contains those simple words that are regularly misunderstood. We are not to accept everything. We're not, not to ignore sin. We're not to, we, we are, are we to question and condemn nothing? No, we're, to, we're not to be those moral jellyfish. We're to stand not on our own authority, but on Scripture's authority. We are to point out sin in others, but in the right way. And the next few verses show us how to do that. We should be doing that. Just to read or quote the first part of verse 1, just to throw that as three words out there is dishonest without reading the rest. Charles Spurgeon says, we should use our judgment, of course. The verse implies that we should judge in a right sense. But we should not indulge the criticizing faculty on others in a censorious manner as if we were set in authority and had a right to dispense judgment among our fellows. In some respects, you remember who Jesus is speaking to here. He's addressing the Pharisees. They were judging him. They were judging others all the time. Remember when he healed the paralyzed man in Matthew 9, what did they do? They accused him of blaspheming. When he ate with the tax collectors and sinners, he receives sinners and eats with them, they said. Or when the disciples were eating the heads of grain on the Sabbath. Or more directly in Luke 18, we have that that picture of the repentant tax collector and, and the Pharisee saying, I thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector. They're judging all the time. And so Jesus in, in some ways also is using the religious leaders here as an illustration of this hypocrisy. One writer says, Jesus is not telling us to overlook sin in one another. Rather, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who have elevated themselves and demeaned others who didn't live up to their own particular standards. This was the Pharisees' way of life, their program of holiness. And Jesus' response to that is not to tell them to forget about holiness or to stop pointing out sin, rather... His response is to exhort them to consider their own sin before they begin pointing out sin in others. This is a passage that is not unrelated to the previous passage in chapter 6, which talks about forgiveness. So that's the mandate. Who's it from? What authority does he speak this with? But now let's move on to the why question, the, the motivation, the mandate and the motivation. It says, so that you will not be judged. There's a motivation, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So this is where we start to see (coughs) the broader context. That the clarification that's ignored by 
those people who like to take the start, very start of verse 1 and just lob it as a grenade and run away. What does the mandate, what does the command actually mean in context? When we ask that question, there are foundational stones that we must have in place. We have to look for teaching on this subject in the rest of Scripture. It came to us through one single author, the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit indwelling within us as believers to interpret and apply what we read. We're completely dependent on Him. He brings clarity, or we call that perspicuity, where we compare Scripture with Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. And we could go to multiple places there. But even right here, in our own passage, he clarifies what it means. You see, this is, this is the key point here. This verse, do not judge, these words, do not judge, it's all about condemning hypocritical judgmentalism. It's all about condemning hypocritical judgmentalism. There's also warnings in here about having an unnecessarily critical spirit as well. You see, the last section of verse 1 and, and verse 2 together provide that theological motivation for not judging inappropriately. How you act, you see, will have consequences. Romans 2.1, therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. It's the same, same message. Christ Jesus is warning the people who are harsh, who are hypocrites, judging, who are critical when they condemn others, that this is the standard that God will use on, on you. So I wonder if you're a criticizer. Do you judge harshly? Do you jump to conclusions? You see the warning for you here, right? By your standard of measure. Or it could be translated, as a man measures, it will be measured back to him. Similarly, Luke 6, do not judge, verse 37, and you will not be judged, do not, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. There's a basis of love underneath this whole thing, of care, not a judgmental spirit. And that's what Jesus isn't seeing in these Pharisees. Jesus himself made many judgments in his earthly life. He pointed out good, he pointed out sin. He told people to change. They needed to change. He points, he points out hypocrisy. He is the ultimate judge on the last day after his coming where he will make a discerning judgment on every single person who has ever lived split into saved and unsaved, sheep and goats. Certainly a different type of judgment for the believer and the unbeliever. But James tells believers that even though our good works don't save us, they are judged. There will be judgments like we find in the parable of the talents. How have we used them? 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Many examples of this sinless, perfect Jesus judging. Even if you just look at the gospel accounts, Matthew 3, 7, he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. You offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Matthew 5, verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's judging things. Matthew 7.20, you will know them by their fruits. That's a judging. Appropriate judging does happen, will happen, should happen, must happen if we are Christ-like. But with that right foundational attitude, with that right motivation towards the person in front of us that we are judging. And what we're told is that the way you are judged is somehow impacted by the way you judge others. So we've seen the mandate, we've seen the motivation, we've started to see some of the true meaning of this passage. And to help, now Jesus paints a picture for us. He gives us an illustration to cement this very same point in verses 3 through 5. The third point, mandate, motivation, and now model, the model gives us two rhetorical questions. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? There's one question. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? There's the second. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I wonder if you've ever played that that game operation i don't think i've done it for more than 20 years it's where you've got those metal tweezers and you've got to take an organ or a bone out of a body and if your hands are shaking you're going to to lose you're going to touch the sides it's going to buzz it's going to beep at you and it's it's hard enough but it's going to be utterly impossible even ludicrous if if you can't see properly you're going to do a very poor job In our church in Grand Rapids, uh, we've had lots of people undergoing surgery. Lots of hips in the last couple of months have have been done. And I I wonder if um, the surgeon was to come in that morning when they're about to do the hip. And uh, they they come in and they say, do you know what? I'm so good at this. I'm going to do this one with my eyes closed. How do you think the patient should react to that? Not Not well. You want, you need a surgeon who cares about your welfare, who has skill, who has understanding, who has clear vision. But that's not the picture we see here. This is a picture of hypocrisy. What we have is an individual in a ridiculous position. That's the point. They're pointing out what we might call a small sin that needs to be qualified when it's, it's blatantly obvious that he has a much bigger sin. Matthew Henry, he points out that there are degrees in sin. Some sins are comparatively but as motes, like it means a little tiny piece, a moat. Others as beams, like a beam of wood. Some as a gnat, others as a camel. Not that there is any little sin, 
for there is no little God to sin against. If it be a mote or splinter or slither, for so it might be read, it is in the eye. If a gnat, it is in the throat, both painful and perilous. And we cannot be easy or well till they are got out. See, it's a, it's a comparison of a speck of sawdust, a slither, a splinter, as Matthew Henry called it. Even a particle of dust that needs to be dealt with. Let me repeat that. Needs to be dealt with. But it's almost insignificant against a plank, a log, a beam of wood, which he's blinded by. And Jesus uses this this simple metaphor. It's an absurd picture. The person (coughs) thinks they're being objective, but their problem is blatant. One commenter says, it is evident that Jesus is not condemning criticism as such, but rather the criticism of others when we exercise no comparable self-criticism, nor correction as such, but rather the correction of others when we have not first corrected ourselves. R.C. Sproul, Jesus prohibits one kind of judging, or one motive for judgment, but approves a different kind. Condemning others for their faults is a failure to exercise forgiveness. Only a gentle and humble correction that first recognizes one's own greater faults, the log in one's own eye, can help. He goes on, there is also a necessary discerning kind of judgment that does not condemn, but distinguishes unbelief from belief. And he points out that the real method of discernment that we should use is given in verse 16, where we are to recognize or judge people by their fruits. Brothers and sisters, let's have the right attitude to each other. Notice here whose eye this is. It's your brother. Don't miss that. You see, you do this with love and compassion and forgiveness, doing everything you can to think the best of each other, not preoccupied by the other person's sin. A critical spirit is not the fruit anyone wants to see. The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 verse 10 onwards says, but as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. Puritan Matthew Henry said, Our own sins ought to appear greater to us than the same sins, same sins, in each other, in others. That which charity teaches us to call but a splinter in our brother's eye, true repentance and godly sorrow will teach us to call a beam in our own. For the sins of others must be extenuated, but our own aggravated. Look at yourself more. Than you do at others. He goes on to say, Our Savior 
is here directing us how to conduct ourselves in reference to the faults of others. And his expressions seem intended as a reproof to the scribes and Pharisees who were very rigid and severe in condemning all about them as they, those commonly are that are proud and conceited in justifying themselves. That raises the question, are you one of those rigid, severe criticizers? Do you justify your own sin? Do you look past your own sin? Listen, when we do have to confront people with sin, there are procedures to follow. We are not judge, jury, and executioner. You, you, perhaps you know Matthew 8, 18. It says, now if your brother sins, notice that the sin is established. That's an important first step. There's no subjectivity there. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. It's growing. And if he refuses to listen to them, plural, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see, there is certainly judging of actions and behavior there. But in a right, in a carefully managed context. Individually, all the way to bringing the actions to the church. If the body of Christ agrees. There's no lone ranger condemnation going on. Notice something that's often skipped. The purpose. The purpose of all of this is to help. Is to help after sin. You see, after removing the log, there's a purpose. So that then we can help to correct by then removing the speck. Speck is never ignored. Both are sin. Both need to be dealt with. So there's a condemnation here of hypocritical judgmentalism. And this spirit of judgmentalism has a cure. What's that cure? To understand your own sin. To see it multiplied by a hundred over anybody else's sin. Deal with that first. We need healing. We need help. Judge in that context that this person is your brother. That we are all sinners saved by grace. That we have been shown mercy. And then exercise judgment with an attitude of restoration. Helping our brothers and sisters lovingly, carefully, humbly. We can judge, but appropriately with that attitude of seeking reconciliation. That's back in chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 23 and 24. Looking to forgive. That's in the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, verses 16 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. See, we find elsewhere, even in chapter 5, still in this same sermon, it tells us that we need to love our enemies. How much more should we show love to our brother in our verses? It's clearly not uncommon to criticize others when we have far more serious sins in our own lives. We need to wake up to that 
that possibility, that reality, and we need to pray to, to God to show us our sin. And then very carefully open our mouths to point out faults in our brothers and sisters. And in that, we expect the same level of judgment on ourselves. It's dangerous. There's certainly hypocrisy among the professing church that brings the name of Christ into disrepute. There's no denying that there are pastors who preach in a pulpit week after week against immorality, and then they're found out for being immoral, grievously so. There are counselors who are more in need of help than the person they're counseling on the very same issue. They're just covering it up. Be so careful. Judge yourself first. And if we do that, honestly, without rose-tinted spectacles on, then we can avoid condemning ourselves. Judging isn't condemned completely. Of course it isn't. We're able to discern these things prayerfully with, with God's help. No, the condemnation is on the hypocrite here who takes no account of his own sin. He might even excuse his own sin, minimize his own sin, when at the same time he takes the microscope to other people's sin. One well-known study Bible says, Jesus did not intend to prohibit all acts of judgment. Elsewhere he commanded believers to discern the actions of others. What Jesus condemned is hypocritical judgment that focuses on the faults of others while excusing one's own sins. We actually have a responsibility to other believers, to our fellow people, our fellow brothers and sisters on the narrow way. We need to obey Christ here, you see, address our own sin which obscures us and causes us to be hypocritical. And then, helpfully, lovingly, we're able to judge righteously and help in that appropriate, loving, honest, humble, self-aware, restorative manner. One commentator says, undoubtedly, that we should be willing to encourage one another and point out sinful habits in others, but only after a time of reflection on the ways that sin is present in our own lives. And then, even when we do that, all of our correction, all of our admonition, and all of our encouragements should be seasoned with love, grace, and evident humility. That's what Galatians 6, verse 1 reiterates. Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Christ Jesus tells you to look at yourself first. Deal with your own sin first. Verse 3 says you do not consider or notice that. That's what he's telling these people. We try to rationalize our sin, our guilt. No, understand it, accept it, own it, repent of it. Before you judge others. It's all about inappropriate, hypocritical judgmentalism. And God is watching for righteous judging rather than self-righteous judging. Not just looking at the negative, but also looking at the positive. Getting that balance right. Or are you just a criticizer? Matthew Henry says, 
We must not make the worst of people, nor infer such invidious things from their words and actions as they will not bear. We must not judge uncharitably, unmercifully, nor with a spirit of revenge and a desire to do mischief. We must not judge of a man's state by a single act, nor of what he is in himself, but by what he is to us. Because in our cause, we are apt to be partial. Not impartial, partial. We must not judge the hearts of others, nor their intentions, for it is God's prerogative to try the heart. And we must not step into his throne, nor must we judge of their eternal state, nor call them hypocrites, reprobates, and castaways. That is stretching beyond our line. What we have we to do what have we to do thus to judge another man's servant counsel him and help him but do not judge him first corinthians 4 5 therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the lord comes we leave it to him who will bring who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts and then praise will come to each person from god And so we've seen three points so far. The mandate, the motivation, the model, how we to do it. And then finally, we come to the mockers. The mockers in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Or they will trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you to pieces. We see the attitude here of what we should be like to those who mock, even those who threaten us. Again, he's using a an, an helpful illustration. Uh, some suggest it might be sacrificial meat. He's, he's talking about this holy thing that it's given to dogs or expensive pearls. It's, it's talking about people rejecting the gospel, but also perhaps even Christians who won't take the correction that's given to them that we've just looked at. You know, there have been times in my family where we've decided, okay, today we're going to have a real treat. We're going to have a really nice meal. And uh, being from England, typically that's on a Sunday lunchtime. We'll have a roast dinner, roast beef, horseradish sauce, Yorkshire puddings, beef gravy, all the vegetables that you can, you can imagine. So nice, wonderful, Make, makes us miss home. And then often we've made way too much and there's leftovers that that aren't worth saving in the refrigerator. And in comes our dog. He's called Luther. He's going to get them. And he comes in and he sees that he's about to get something and he's so excited. But frankly, it doesn't matter what we're giving him. He He just wolfs it down. He doesn't taste it. He's not discerning that this is the really special stuff this time. When, when we discern that, you see, this is the good stuff. There's no recognition. There's no acknowledgement. There's no understanding. And that's a little bit like the picture here. People who are undiscerning. They don't see the value. They've got no respect for what they're hearing. 
These are divine truths. This is the living word of God. These, can, these truths, these words in Scripture can tell people the way to heaven, the way not to go to hell, the way to be saved. And it goes over their heads. They, they don't take notice of it. It just goes right off them. They react negatively even sometimes. They don't get it. They've missed it. We know pigs. They're known for digging up expensive truffles, but they have no understanding that this truffle is valuable. It's a ridiculous picture of expensive jewelry being given, given to a, a destructive animal that's got no comprehension. It's not just any animal, though. It's a ceremonially unclean pig that Jesus uses in this example. The significance there. You see, we know, don't we, that, that, that you can throw kind of the rotting stuff to pigs, that stuff that's just turned. You wouldn't, you wouldn't eat it now, but the pig will take it. They'll have it. They'll lap it up. Food that we would no longer eat. They don't care. So we're beginning... We're being told here that some people are undiscerning with rich, precious truths of Scripture. The, the gospel, the way to be forgiven, the way to be reconciled, the way to deal with sin. But some people don't see that need. Some people don't see that they need correction. Some people don't want to hear it. And it's a waste of time. Commentators Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown talk about this verse. They talk about the dogs, talk about them, the savage and snarling haters of truth and righteousness. They weren't really used for pets back then. Or the swine and the pigs. They're impure, they're, they're coarse, they're incapable of appreciating the priceless jewels of Christianity. They say this religion is brought into contempt, and its professors, those who profess it, insulted. When it is forced upon those who cannot value it and will not have it. But while the indiscriminately zealous have need of this caution, let us be on our guard against too readily setting our neighbors down as dogs and swine and excusing ourselves from endeavoring to do them good on this poor plea. Don't put those labels on people and say, okay, I've done with them. I'll never bring them the gospel again. Now this is hard because our attitude should be Loving towards people, not easily writing them off, but always willing to share the, the hope that we have. But this is telling us at some point there's a line. At some point that line is crossed and we need to move on because we're wasting our time. End of verse 6, the illustration, there's two things here. They have no thought for, no dis, they have a disregard for the truth, but then... They also turn on the one who brought the truth. They, they, they have contempt. And perhaps this is what we're experiencing in our generation to a rather minor extent in the USA, but so much more in other countries. A contempt for the gospel and the person who brings it to them. The message that we have, you see, in Scripture is priceless. And this is telling us that there must come a point when after genuinely and sincerely offering these truths, offering these corrections, that it has to stop. But maybe we've done it so many times, they know the gospel. They're rejecting it like these animals. They're resisting, and they're coming back and attacking. 
And we need discernment to know when and what to say. Herod Antipas got the silent treatment from Jesus. There are other examples in Acts. They shook the dust off their feet in chapter, chapter 13. Paul shook, the dust off his, shook out his garments in chapter 18. Also, Paul in, in chapter 28, he quotes Isaiah when he speaks of the people of Rome. He says, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing and will not understand. And you will keep on seeing and will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have become insensitive. And with their ears they hardly hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. They're not listening. These are valuable truths. These are the holy teachings of Jesus. But as Ecclesiastes 3 tells us. There is a time to be silent and a time to speak. John MacArthur says, There will be times when the gospel we present is absolutely rejected and ridiculed, and we make the judgment to turn away and speak no more, deciding that we should shake off the dust of our feet, Matthew 10, 14, and begin ministering somewhere else. There will be times when those to whom we witness will resist the gospel and blaspheme God, and we may speak words of judgment. Like Paul, we must then say, in effect, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. Quoting Acts 18.6. MacArthur goes on, when people not only reject the gospel, but insist on mocking and reviling it, we are not to waste God's holy word and the precious pearls of his truth in a futile and frustrating attempt to win them. We are to leave them to the Lord, trusting that somehow His Spirit can penetrate their hearts, as He apparently did with some of those who who at first rejected the preaching of Paul and the other apostles, or leaving them to the just judgment of God. Now, this is so hard. What about when we get closer to home? What does this look like for your unbelieving family members who seemingly have no interest who know the gospel and reject it over and over again and may even have crossed that line and they're now antagonistic. They now mock. They now revile. They're actively against it every time you open your mouth. So hard, but I doubt that continually berating or arguing with your unbelieving children about the gospel and condemning them at every opportunity is is helpful all the time. Every conversation, every time you're with them, getting nowhere. They know your opinion. And these are things, like MacArthur, like Matthew Henry said, that we need to take to God and leave with God. But also they pointed out that there is hope. That many of these people who were antagonistic, not least Paul himself, antagonistic and going against Christians, God has used them in many mighty ways. I think of Hugh Latimer in the English Reformation. He knew the Scriptures from the Roman Catholic point of view and and would charge and go against Reformed believers and would take them to, to court and in these councils argue against the true believers. And then God miraculously changed him and gave him a new heart and made him a believer And immediately, all that knowledge that he'd acquired on the other other side of the spectrum was used to argue for true Reformed Christianity. In a moment, it was transformed. 
And my advice is to pray, pray, pray. Love, love, love. You didn't deserve your salvation. And neither do they. And the point is that you need to prayerfully discern, relying on God, looking for opportunities, asking for wisdom. Of course you don't give up praying and being willing to share the way of salvation. To go back to the mockers and the unbelievers in our passage, the the brief answer is that many of these people are not actually interested in the answer. We're not to be gullible. They're interested in justifying their own lifestyle. Not only do they want Christians to point out, not to point out their sin, but increasingly we're seeing that that's not enough in our generation. They, they demand affirmation of their lifestyle in our generation. Affirmation of our sin. Rejoice with me in this sin and in who I am. When the gospel is a transformative thing and brings people to Christ's likeness. And the expectation is that whoever comes to Christ and bows the knee will be fundamentally changed from who they are. Praise God for that. So yes, we are to show discernment and and judge, but we are not God. Well, let's round this up. We've seen the mandate. We've seen the motivation. We've seen the model. We've seen the mockers. We've seen that these simple three words do not judge, cannot mean no judging at all, does not mean no judging at all. Because even the Sermon on the Mount shows us moral distinctions, shows us judgments are being made. No, it's telling us the message that judgment, when we do it, shouldn't be censorious, shouldn't be harsh or sharp or rash or unnecessarily critical, always assuming the worst, not looking for it. Always ready to find sin. No. We should not be condemning. We should not be pointing out sin without that appropriate grief and heaviness of our own hearts, knowing what we deserve. Addressing our own sin first. We need that spirit of being helpful rather than the thoughts and actions that violate that Christian principle of loving your brother and sister. We shouldn't be hypocritically judgmental. What we have here is not a condemnation outright of judging others. No, this is a corrective. This is helping our brother and sister to repent while knowing that when we do that, we know our own sinful hearts. Knowing that we are not God having already dealt with the specks and the logs in our own lives, examining our own hearts regularly, measuring by God's measuring stick, not our own, where we have that natural tendency to play it down, to distort. If you don't know Christ, if you you are an unbeliever, then in a sense you've been judged already. You stand condemned naturally. And Scripture tells us, though, that there's a way for that judgment to be overturned. Praise God. And you see the picture of the heavenly courtroom in Scripture. And you are there, utterly guilty. An infinite number of life sentences without parole. But it's not a normal courtroom this judgment is found in. You see, the judge here is the one 
who takes the punishment of the one who is condemned. He steps down from that judgment seat, never minimizing that sin, but taking the just punishment of that sin on himself. Your guilt is not in question. Your offense is proven. The punishment is entirely deserved, but he takes it on him and gives you his righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness, making you acceptable, making you pure. He humbles himself in love. He forgives. And you need that Savior for the coming judgment when one day you will stand before God. And if that has not happened, if you've never repented, if you've never come asking for grace, then that transaction has not yet happened. But it needs to. But as believers, there are many applications which you've seen already and and we need to have this attitude to judging, to judgment in all areas of our lives, within the church, within world affairs, within political events, when you talk to uh, people in, in the workplace, you use the principles in this imperfect body of believers, showing grace, showing mercy that you too have been shown. You use the principles in your home. You use the principles in your marriage, in your relationship with your children, being slow, being careful to judge others, being quick to forgive as you have been forgiven, assuming the best of others' motives, being Christ-like, knowing your own heart before you speak. See, you're judging in this area projects forward to how you will be judged. It's not a question of whether you're, you're saved or not through this judgment, but it does project backwards as a litmus test to see if you were truly saved in the first place. Do you understand how forgiveness works? Do you understand how grace works? And if you have been shown grace to the infinite degree in your salvation, surely that transforms into how you deal with others. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't be that critical fault finder in, in the church. Let's serve our brothers and sisters in pointing out, in judging sin in the right way, trusting God's ultimate judgment. Only he can see the heart He can see the motivations. He can see all the information and you are not God. Recognize your own shortcomings. John 7, 24, do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Maybe there are people to apologize to that you've judged, that you assumed the worst of. Maybe you've had some hypocrisy that needs to be dealt with. Value these truths. Apply these truths. Show grace and understanding in your relationships. Remember what you were. Remember what you've been forgiven from and what you are now by the grace of God. But do judge in the right way, even with unbelievers. Do point out sin with that baseline of love and care because that's often the way that God uses to show people that they need the Savior, that they need forgiveness. Do it lovingly, offering the gospel 
of hope. You know, believer, that if you were to be judged as you deserve, that you'd be sent to hell for all eternity. It's only through the righteousness of Christ that you're saved because he is judged and condemned in your place by radical, excessive, free grace, not through any righteousness that you have in yourself. Yes, each of us will be judged, but praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price, paid the ransom, secured our release, and now he sets us the example in judging righteously. Be Christ-like in this. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we come to you knowing that we have faults, that we have sin remaining in our lives, even though we are no longer slaves to sin. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us in that continuing battle until we reach heaven's shore. Help us, Lord, to look at our own sin before we look at the sin of others. Help us, Lord, though, to be helpful and encouraging to our brothers and sisters in Christ by appropriately and lovingly living with them and helping them and guiding them on the way to the celestial city. Lord, help us not to be critical, but help us in the right way to judge and to point out and to discern sin in ourselves but also in others. Lord, help us then to guide them in a restorative manner to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to purity, to Christ-likeness. Lord, we pray that as a church, as a people, that you will help us to kill sin, that we will be in this together, that we won't just ignore these things, but that we would take them seriously. But Lord, we come to you crying out to you for the one who has never experienced this forgiveness, has never repented of their sin. Oh God, we pray that in the way that you used others to bring the gospel into our lives as a means, Lord, we pray that you'll use us as a means, that you'll use even this exposition of your word as a means to show people their lostness and their sin and their guilt before you. Oh God, use this. And we pray some, many, would even through this come to know you, come to find forgiveness through this compassionate, loving, forgiving Savior. Lord, we pray that they will see Christ and he will no longer be their condemning judge, but their brother, their co-heir, and that together we will be with him for eternity in heaven. Lord, bless us, we pray. And encourage as we pray through this word. In Jesus' name, amen.